Awesome. Well, good day, everyone. And uh, how good, as we just talked about, how good was Easter last week? It's awesome that we can, yeah, celebrate Easter not only with uh, like each other, but also with our community and just reflect that this is why we are here. This is why we exist. And... Um, we normally, after Easter, talk about the resurrection, and so we're going to be talking about that today, but I want to kind of look at it in a slightly different way and try and look at it through the lens of life after death and what, what happens when we die, in particular, resurrection. And uh, as, as David said before, we're looking at resurrection is coming. And it's interesting that uh, as we look at this, as I've been doing some research and reading, that it's actually broken a whole lot of my paradigms have kind of thrown the bomb into what I thought I knew. And so I've got a bunch of content, so bear with me and let's, let's dive into um, what the Bible says and how we look at this biblically and try and hopefully uh, it'll be helpful to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that as we gather this morning and we um, seek what you have to say to us as we try and look at your word and as we look at what our resurrection means to us, Lord, would you speak to us? Would you give me the words? I don't have the words unless you give them to me. And Father, we also pray that you would open our hearts to hear from you directly this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. It's interesting that when we talk about heaven, um, everyone has something to say. It's one of those topics that everyone has a thought, Um, whether it's the person down the street or someone in the coffee shop. uh, and, And people have all different sorts of questions. You've got... Someone asking or, or, or talking about what they believe will happen to them when they die, or what they believe has happened to their great auntie Nelly, or what's happened to their daughter's hamster that just died recently. But we all have thoughts about heaven. And the one thing that's really common across the board now is that we all know what heaven and a word means. When we talk about heaven, we talk about the place where I almost certainly I, and probably you, but maybe not them, but where I will go when I die then. We, we, we're pretty sure that it's where I go, I then. But when you look at the Bible, when you look at the biblical text, it's, you're really hard-pressed to find this kind of language. The Bible doesn't use the same kind of language that we do. And in fact, it, it, it doesn't talk about heaven as the place where I go then. It's talking about heaven as the place where God is now. And you, you see this time and time again in, in biblical texts like Genesis 22, the Lord called to him from heaven. Or Deuteronomy 26, Lord, look down from heaven, your holy dwelling place. So when you look at the biblical text time and time again, Heaven is the place where God dwells now. And not only that, it's the place where God goes to be close to humanity. God is, is, is in heaven and he chooses to um, be in heaven because it's, it's as close to earth as it's physically possible to get. You see this particularly in the, in the Psalms uh, and in Isaiah. Psalm 11.4, the Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold... His eyes gaze upon humankind. Well, another passage, the Lord looks down from heaven to see if there are any who are wise. God is close to human beings in heaven. And this is a strand of theology that runs right through the Bible. And in order to get this, I think we need to try and put aside some of our own ideas of where heaven is or what heaven is. 
and look at it through the lens of a Hebrew thinker. When I say that, I'm not just talking about the Old Testament, but also uh, the New Testament as well. All of the biblical authors saw things through a Hebrew worldview. And if you were a Hebrew, you would have seen things through the lens of Genesis, and in particular, Genesis 1. Many of you are familiar with the creation story where uh, the world is described as being created in, in six periods of time. We won't bother ourselves about um, what that is. We'll just wave at that. But in the creation story, what people often don't pay attention to is it's not just six days, but it's three lots of three. You have three days where God separates and orders, and then you have three days that correspond to those days. So you have day one where God separates the light and the dark, and then day two where God takes the, the raw material that he works with, the chaotic waters, and he literally separates the waters above from the waters below. And then day three, where God separates the waters below from dry land. And then from there, you have days four, which is where God fills uh, the sun, moon, and stars. You could go in the whole little detour there and talk about it's probably God creating spiritual beings, but we won't even go there. Uh, then day five, where God fills the waters above with birds and the waters below with fish. And then day six, where God creates animals on the, the dry land and, and then humans. And why are we looking at Genesis if we're talking about heaven? The reason is, is that as we look at this, we see an ancient Hebrew cosmology, a way of seeing the world. And what they saw was that you've got your chaotic waters, you've got your dry land, and then if you look in your Bibles, you'll probably see a word that says that God separated the waters above from the waters below with a firmament. Now, if you have no idea what a firmament is, like me, that is okay because it's actually not an English word. When the, the translators of the Bible um, were, were translating into different languages, they got to English and they went, oh, the Hebrew word rakia, which is what they use for this thing, it literally means a thin, beaten out substance, possibly made of metal. When they got to this word, they went, oh, there's no word in English for this. But they saw that in Latin, there is a word for a thin, beaten-out substance, possibly made of metal. And so they went, oh, thank you very much. We'll take this Latin word and put it in. No one knows what it means, but anyway, it is what it is. But the word here is that they thought there was some sort of dome or shield above which is water and above which is God. And if you have any doubt that there is a dome where there's water above, this is some basic ancient observational science. They would look out at the sea, and the sea is the colour blue, and they look at the sky, and the sky is the colour blue, and the sea is water, therefore the sky must be water. And if you have any doubt about this, every so often the sky leaks, and you get um, some windows of heaven opening up. And, and if you go, oh, these silly ancient Hebrews with their odd views, hold on a second. If you speak English, which you do, you may have been at some point out into the rain, you've gone out and you've got drenched and you're just totally wet. You come back in, what do you say? The heavens opened. Come directly from this idea. And so for the Hebrews, their worldview 
was that God created dry land out of water. He separated the waters above from the waters below. And above the Rekia is heaven, is God's space. And why this is important is because God was literally up there. He, if you could just go up there, you would get to God. You see this in 2 Corinthians where Paul goes, I know a man who, in, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, but somehow he was taken up to the third heaven. And Paul's probably talking about himself. And he's saying, I literally went up to heaven. What, what take Jesus' ascension. Jesus and the disciples, uh, Jesus risen again. They go up on a mountain. And what happens? Jesus ascends into heaven. He's saying... Jesus went back into God's space. So heaven is, as we just talked about before, it's God's space. And it was up there. It was as real and close to earth as the dirt or the sea or the water. You you actually see this in interesting ways in different places. Uh, The Celtic Christians have an idea that the veil between heaven and earth is thin. And I love that idea. Um, but as um, we look at this, what this does is it challenges us today. Because what, what do we do with this? We get to an idea like this in the Hebrew Bible, and we go, well, is heaven literally up there? I suspect most of us probably don't think that. Because we've looked at science and Galileo and, and different things that where you can go up and heaven isn't just there. And so what we've done is we've privatised heaven and we've postponed it. It'll happen sometime and we've gone, heaven is spirity, spiritual, to earth physical. And because if I'm going to heaven when I die, then, therefore my soul, we import all these Greek Ideas. We say my soul will go off to a spiritual heaven one day. And so my body, this earth, the physical is bad and the spiritual is good. But the Hebrew thinkers would never have thought like this. The Hebrew thinkers didn't think that heaven was a spiritual place and earth was physical. They saw it as physical. They saw it as part of the created order. Um, now... As we wrestle with this, the problem here is that it starts messing with our ideas of heaven and life after death. Because if you see, create, if you see heaven as somewhere that's spiritual, you miss so much of the biblical idea about this. Job says, um, when he's talking about the creative world, he includes heaven. He says, it is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. Now, Sheol was the place in the watery, um, under, the, under the dry land. And it was the idea where the dead go. It wasn't good or bad. It was just the place of the dead. And Job includes heaven and earth together. In, in Isaiah, he says, um, ask the Lord for a sign, as, whether as high as the heavens or the earth or below the earth. And, sorry, I just lost where, here we are. So, why this challenges us is because most of us, if I was to ask you, and I won't, but if I was, to say, is heaven eternal? Most of us would probably say yes, that there is eternity connected to heaven somehow. 
But when we look at the Bible, Genesis 1, God created the heavens. They had a beginning. Which leads to another interesting question was where was God before he created heaven? Hang on. Heaven is God's space. Where was he before heaven? And the idea, the answer is he was everywhere and nowhere. He only needed a space in order to be close to earth. Heaven, he didn't need a space in the same way beforehand. Heaven is his way of being close to us. So heaven has a beginning and is an eternal will. According to Jesus, it's going to pass away. Twice in the Gospel of Matthew, he says, when heaven, or until heaven and earth pass away, my words won't pass away. Or until heaven and earth pass away, not the least stroke of the law will pass away. Now hang on a minute. If heaven is the place where I go when I die, what happens when it passes away? Slight difficulty. And the answer, according to the biblical narrative, is it will be replaced. See, just as heaven and earth are together, they were created together, they're held together, and they will pass away together, according to Revelation 22, they will be recreated together. And then I saw a new heavens and a new earth, and the earth will pass away, and the old heavens and the old earth will pass away, I mean. Now, note that it doesn't say... Earth will pass away and there'll just be heaven. Nor that heavens and earth will pass away and there'll be a new heaven. No, there's a new heavens and a new earth. And if there's a new earth, we're going to need new bodies to inhabit the new earth, which gets us to Jesus. See, the resurrection is so important. It's the heart of the Christian message because our hope isn't that one day my soul will drift off and be with a spiritual realm. That was a Greek idea. They had this idea that we had plug-and-play souls, that when we died, they drifted off to heaven and then would one day come and plug into another body. But that's not the Christian idea. According to the Hebrew idea of a soul, it's literally the word nephesh. Can you say that? Nephesh. Nephesh. And it's the idea of our throat. Um, what passes through your throat? Water, food, your words, your air, your energy, everything, your very being. And this was the idea of your soul. It's the very being of who you are, is your soul. And Jesus' promise, if we look at the life of Jesus and we get to who Jesus is and what he did, because Jesus rose again, I will rise again. Because Jesus died in our place, acting on our behalf. We know this. He died to save us, and then he rose again. But he didn't just rise again to show us that it was true. That's a great thing. But he rose again because it's the hope that one day I will rise to. The hope, according to the Bible, is that one day I, my body, my my very being, will get new life. Not just in a vague spiritual sense, but in real, concrete, holdable, graspable terms. So, as we look at creation and then resurrection, we actually see this right through the Bible. Daniel 12, we see Daniel says, uh, and then I saw the archangel, and and I saw uh, the, the dead rise from their tombs, 
And some went to everlasting life and some went to everlasting shame and contempt. It's right through the Bible with the idea of resurrection. Now, what does that mean for us? And this is where it gets kind of challenging. Because I think we're pretty comfortable with the idea of if I have a soul, it goes off to be with heaven and that's okay. But if I'm resurrected, what does that mean? What does that mean to the moment I die? What does that mean to the people that I love? Where are they? What's happening? And it's a whole lot of questions, right? If resurrection is true, what do we do with that? And Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, which Pastor David picked as our passage for Easter, we looked at how Paul gets the heart of the resurrection to say, this is our hope. The Corinthians didn't have a problem with resurrection for Jesus. They knew that Jesus has risen from the dead. But the reason he writes 1 Corinthians 15 is because for these Greek thinkers, they couldn't deal with the fact that one day you and I will rise again. They just couldn't comprehend it. And so he's starting to explain to them that our hope is resurrection. Our hope is that one day we will be resurrected. And heaven, God's space, isn't just a place that we go where I die, but one day heaven will be united to earth. This is Revelation 22 language, where the new Jerusalem and heaven come down to be with earth. One day God's space is coming into our space, and that's our hope. That's our hope. If we take the the doctrine of the the resurrection seriously, it means that all different areas of our life need to change. The way I think about earth needs to change. I need to care for this creation because this world isn't just something that's going to be left and I'm going to leave it. No, it's going to be what God recreates for us to live in with him eternally. It means that I need to care about this world. It It means I need to care about my body. If resurrection is my hope, I'm going to live a bodied existence forever. So I need to be comfortable living in a body. Sure, I'm going to get a new one, but I still am going to have a body. It means that as my hope of death isn't just my soul drifting away, but actually it's a promise that I will live in the earth that I've always dreamed of but never quite got. The hope that, you know, those moments in life when you had something of of joy or ecstasy or excitement in earth, the moment maybe in nature or with family or in in friendship or whatever it is, and we've caught something and it's so good, but it, it just wasn't quite there. It's the promise that one day that will be our fulfillment. One day the earth that we've longed for but never quite got will be our hope and our hope. And it leads us to Romans 8. Paula Gooder, who is a uh, British theologian, um, someone that I found really helpful as a communicator, um, has wrote a book on heaven. And after she wrote the book and submitted the manuscript, she uh, was waiting to hear back. And in the meantime, one of her closest friends passed away. And it was a really sudden death. She was uh, diagnosed with cancer and then three weeks later passed away. And in that moment, she had people coming to her and saying, oh, you've just written a book on heaven. Surely you or anyone should be able to deal with this. But of course, she wasn't. 
And in that moment, she realized all of her theological arguments, all of her understanding, her thoughts on 1 Corinthians 15 didn't help her at all. But what helped her was Romans 8. And she looked at this passage, which you probably have heard if you're a Christian, where it says, And I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, nor the present nor the future, nor heights nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from God's love. And it was in that moment that she realized that not even death can separate us from God's love. What happens the moment we die? Well, the Bible isn't really concerned about life after death. It's primarily concerned about life after life after death, which is the hope that when Jesus returns, we'll have resurrection. And there's a few hints. When Jesus is on the cross, um, he says, uh, today you'll be with me in paradise. So there's this promise. You see this in the letters as well, that we'll be with God when we die. And we don't quite know what that looks like, but the Bible's primary concern through the Old Testament, through the New Testament, is that one day I will be resurrected and I will bodily be with Jesus and I will experience life and this earth and all the things that my heart longs for to the fullest. And that's our hope. We, whenever the church gets to difficulties, persecutions, Struggles, temptations, challenges, they almost always turn to the doctrine of the resurrection, to the doctrine of life after death. Because it's hope. And we need hope to be able to push through things. And our hope as a Christian, if you believe in Jesus, your hope is that this life is not the end. But not just in some vague sense, in a real, in a concrete, in a physical sense. Just as Jesus was risen from the dead, so I will rise. In Romans 8 as well, it says, And just as Christ was raised, just as the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead now lives in you, now, eternity starts now, just as Christ was raised from the dead, so also will he bring life, life, to your mortal body. Through his spirit that lives in you. Your hope, my hope, is that resurrection is coming. And that should exhilarate us. And it's interesting, as I finish up, it's interesting that the Bible doesn't tell us everything, nor does it tell us nothing about heaven, about the new heavens and the new earth. No, it tells us just enough, an inkling, a glimpse, a spark. And I think the reason for that is that God invites us to dream, to use our imagination. C.S. Lewis talks about baptising the imagination. What will heaven smell like? What will the new earth feel like? What will God's presence sound like? And as we use our imagination, that should kindle our hearts with a fire that sends us out with hope into every challenge and every circumstance because we know that the resurrection is coming. Let me finish at the last lines of uh, Narnia, which C.S. Lewis wrote, and uh, he used this as a way to, to, to baptise his imagination, to try and imagine what's coming. And there's this figure which is Aslan, kind of like the Jesus figure, and he says this. Aslan said softly, Your father and mother and all of you are 
as you called it in the Shadowlands, it's this earth. You're, you're dead. But that means the term is over and the holidays have begun. The dream is ended and this is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked like a lion to them. But he began, things began to happen that after that, they were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And all of us, for all of us, this is the end of all the stories. And I can most truly say that they did live happily ever after. But for them, this was only the beginning of the real story. All of them, all of their life in this world and all of their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. And now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story on which no one on earth has read which goes on forever, and in which every chapter is better than the one before. Our hope is that resurrection is coming. And my prayer is that for you, that would ignite your hearts with a passion for Jesus and a desperate cry of come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in your word, your promise is not some vague spiritual sense where we have to leave earth but a hope that one day you will resurrect us just as Christ was resurrected we thank you Lord that our hope is as real and as alive as Jesus' body which the disciples touched and felt and thank you Lord that this is, is more wonderful than our minds can hold but Lord we pray that the doctrine of the resurrection would be as central to us as it was to Jesus and to Paul and to the early Christians. That it would set our hearts with a fire and it would send us out with a resurrection power to live the life you've called us to live. And we pray this in the name of the risen Jesus. Amen.